from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. The shoegaze movement emerged in the late 80s with punishing volume but dreamy melodies. Today we're going to dissect that psychedelic wall of sound. Also, we're going to review the latest album from DC post-punk band Priests and hear what song got David Bazan hooked on Sonics. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner, Jim DeRogatis. And uh, later in the show, we're going to break down shoegaze, a genre that could make your ears bleed, but also put a smile on your face. It certainly does on ours. Yeah. Uh, But first, we've got new music from Priests. That is Jesus' Son, a new song from Priest, a Washington, D.C. band. Uh, the new album is The Seduction of Kansas, their second album. Their uh, debut came out in 2017, Nothing Feels Natural. We reviewed it here on the show, Jim, and uh, we both loved it. I think it was yeah. one of the most uh, fully realized debut albums we'd both heard in quite a while. And there was a reason for that. This band has been gigging around um, the Washington, D.C. area and the region since 2012, uh, releasing independent recordings on their own Sister Polygon Records label, a true DIY band, not only uh, a key players in that scene, but helping other bands uh, release music as well. So when they came out with uh, that 2017 debut, they sounded like a fully formed band. They've had a point of view. They had a sound. They got well-reviewed. They started playing some festival shows. Uh, Now we have album number two, The Seduction of Kansas. The band has trimmed down a bit. The bassist uh, moved on to a different project, Mm -hmm. and it's a core trio now. Vocalist uh, Katie Alice Greer, guitarist G.L. Jaguar, and drummer Danielle Danielle with... uh, touring bassist uh, joining the band in the studio, as well as uh, a producer. The first time they've actually worked with an outside uh, guy uh, outside of the Washington, D.C. scene, John Congleton, who seems to be working with with just about everybody He's on like uh, one out of every three (laughs) records we've reviewed in the last year. And quite a a few of them are very good. We're going to give you an opinion on Priest's The Seduction of Kansas in a minute, but here's a track from it first, Ice Cream from Priest's on Sound Opinions. Kansas. 
That is Ice Cream by Priests from its uh, second proper album. What a song. I'm hearing X-Ray Specs in there. Yeah. I'm loving it. But they have that attitude that uh, refuse to acknowledge genre boundaries, where if they are interested in, appropriately enough, uh, some shoegaze elements to their music, um, some chaos noise elements to their music, uh, some, some, some fairly straightforward punk a la Ramones or Wire, all of it's going into their mix. Uh, but, Mr. Codd, I'm going to wax uh, English professor on you mm. and talk Uh-oh. about the lyrics here. Um, the title comes from, the title of the album uh, comes from Tom Frank's uh, really influential 2005 book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Yeah. Where Frank, he was arguing that so many people in the white, lower middle class, working class, the farmers of America are voting against their interests uh, for moral reasons, uh, supporting economic policies that would only hurt them more. Hmm. And, you know, what's fascinating about this uh, new priest's record, Seduction of Kansas, is trying to have empathy for the other side, for lack of a better term, at this moment of great American division. It is not a, we are the resistors, you are the evil record. They are trying to get inside the head of other people who are at each other's throats. It's a cliche among pundits, you know, this new American civil war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it exists, and it's real. And we've never had such disdain for people who disagree with us in America. So over this ferocious musical backing, priests are dealing with some very, very heavy issues. It's really super sophisticated, uh, and none of this um, uh, detracts from the sheer bang-your-head-on-the-wall joy of this noisy chaos. Well, that's what I loved about the first record, that you had this sort of serious side of the band, sort of an, I I dare say, intellectual side to the band. They're thoughtful people, uh, social and political viewpoints expressed in a very eloquent manner, as you said, combined with this very accessible music. Um, the, the, the first record was incredibly danceable. This one is as well. There's, there's uh, more electronic on this record that, that ups the dance. More electronic and more variety of instruments. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some marimba on here, some mellotron, you know, I mean, these, they're experimenting <laughs> uh, with a wide variety of sounds and instrumentation. Uh, I still think that GL Jaguar is a genius guitar player. Uh, the tone, you know, treating it as a sound machine as opposed to something that plays, you know, notes. I, I, I think the lyrics do reward uh, deeper investigation. I think the the broader story here is that, you know, th- th- this is about storytelling. We tell ourselves ourselves stories that become myths, and then we start mm. to believe them, yeah. and thinking, oh, that's how things really are. Fake uh, news. You know that line from the title track, a drawn out charismatic parody of what a country thought it used to be. And that's how we're, you know, America is right now in that sort of, you know, we have this this idea of who we are and then but what what are we really 
You know, and 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 there's a disconnect there. I that really, really think exploring. this is this is like part two to that Super Chunk album we both loved last year. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. I think the Super Chunk album was probably a little more direct. This is perhaps yeah. more elliptical lyrically, but it's just as hard hitting. It's a great record. Share your thoughts on Priest by calling 888-859-1800 and leaving us a message. Now, let's take a critical look at Shoegaze. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Only Shallow by My Bloody Valentine from its 1991 album Loveless. That song and that album is really the hallmark of shoegaze, a genre we thought deserved the Sound Opinions dissection treatment. We've probably mentioned the term shoegaze or shoegazer probably three or four dozen times a year. (laughs) It's a period of rock history and a sound that is still very much au courant in current bands taking their inspiration from this period in England in the late 80s and early 90s. I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the name and the sound, and then you'll give us an historical context and we'll hopefully take listeners through what was worth celebrating about the shoegazer moment. Let's start with that weird name, first of all, right? The English press from the beginning was rather cynical and snarky about this new movement of young bands circa 88, 89, 1990, just before grunge really exploded in the U.S., this scene in England. It was of quiet, thoughtful young musicians, many of them art school educated, and they were not very vociferous on stage. They stood and they looked at their shoes while turning out this amazing noise. There was a big inspiration from bands in the U.S. like Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth, which had preceded the shoegazer bands in the U.K. by five or or more years in the middle of the indie rock 80s in the U.S., but there was a little bit more attention to history. All of this is intertwined with the entire lineage of psychedelia in British rock and American rock. You know, it wasn't just this moment in San Francisco in 67. It was an approach to the studio and an approach to making this massive noise on stage that, you know, you didn't have to be a great frontman, an Iggy Pop or something. You know, you could just concentrate on letting the noise do the talking for you. That was what Shoegaze was about sonically. But where did it come from historically? Jim, you're absolutely right. These bands were students of rock history. They were coming at it from a tradition that extends back several decades, I think, to to look at the roots of where shoegaze was coming from. You know, this whole notion of looking at the guitar as not something that was strictly designed to play blues-based chord progressions or notes or have that sort of feel. It was a hunk of wire and wood, and it was essentially a sound machine. And I think you go back to... uh, those records by the Velvet Underground in the mid to late 60s as a template for a lot of what was going on. I just like Sister Raisin, on. I 
there's a lineage. You, you know, New York City, Velvet Underground to Sonic Youth to the No Wave bands with Glenn Branca stacking those guitars on top of each other. You mentioned Dinosaur Jr. out of Massachusetts in the 80s as an indie rock precursor. A lot of those proto-punk bands out of Detroit, the Stooges and the MC5, when they were doing some of their more freeform experiments. I would even cite the Eight Miles High era birds out of the West Coast California scene as an influence on this sound. Greg, though, 1989 was a particular watershed year because you had a lot of critics in London and in New York saying everything that could be done with two guitars, Mm -hmm. bass, and drums has been done. Guitars are passe. And in the indie rock American scene, you had guitar bands very much saying, you know, wait a minute, guitars aren't done. We can still do new things with them. And then the Brits picked it up. And that's really where shoegaze is coming in. Yes. You know, in the 80s, you started to see elements of this bubbling into this dream pop sound that was, again, a term coined by the UK press. Groups like A.R. Kane and the Cocteau Twins having this sort of dreamy, atmospheric sound with the way they were using guitars. And the whole overdriven guitar sound of the Jesus and Mary chain, or even the psychedelic post-punk of somebody like Spaceman 3 or Chameleons, you started to see this bubbling out. So coinciding with what was going on in the UK at the time, you had the grunge scene out of the Pacific Northwest. You had the Manchester scene in Manchester in the UK with Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Charlatans UK, combining dance elements with this sort of trippy psychedelia. So you had this flowering, the first real flowering, I think, commercially, of punk music on a commercial spectrum. Post-punk, non-mainstream approach to record making and songwriting. And I think a lot of the shoegaze bands were very much influenced by punk. You cannot say that enough. Even though they were using these long-form guitar parts, they weren't really playing solos as such. They were orchestrating the guitars to create these enveloping atmospheres. That's right, Greg. It can't be overstated that while the records may occasionally seem dreamy and trance-inducing, hypnotic, to see these bands live, and we're going to talk about the key members of this shoegaze class later, uh, was often overwhelming. It was like, shear the top of your head off (laughs) with some of the loudest music you've ever heard, and you have to leave with your ears bleeding, and you've never been happier. 
Let's talk about making the albums because there are two consistents in most of the shoegaze story. Number one is Creation Records, started by a Scotsman named Alan McGee, a great character who we've talked about in the past on Sound Opinions. And the other is his favorite engineer, Alan Mulder. Alan Mulder would become a key figure because he worked with all of the key, really important British shoegaze bands, Swerve Driver, My Bloody Valentine, Ride, and then he would go on to bring that influence to America with bands like the Smashing Pumpkins and Nine Inch Nails. I think he was the real catalyst, the line, if there was one to be drawn, between the American alternative scene and what had proceeded in Britain. Now, shoegazer was a derisive term. The English critics were throwing this at a lot of these bands, saying, you know, they're no fun to watch. Another term that got added later on was the scene that celebrates itself. (laughs) Because some of these kids had come from Oxford. We were going to make fun of them for thinking who they were, as we would say in New Jersey. right? Alan McGee was also picked on by the British press. Now, Simon Reynolds, one of the celebratory critics of many of these bands, he did have a thing against creation. He said it was all retro. It was all nostalgia. All of this music is rooted in the past. It's just repeating itself. He was pushing for something different. He did champion one of the bands above and beyond, and that was My Bloody Valentine. That's right, Jim. Uh, we talk about them and other key shoegaze bands when we return to our genre dissection after a short break. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and my partner is Jim Burigatis. That's the song I only said from the band My Bloody Valentine. This week on the show, we're looking at the shoegaze movement of the early 1990s in one of our periodic genre dissections. And we left off before the break referring to the UK music critic Simon Reynolds, who put out a key book in 1990 called Blissed Out, where he defined what it is about the music that was so appealing, this whole idea of transcendence, you know, which was a big part of psychedelic, through oblivion. You know, the noise would set you free. And I think there was a whole sense in the U.K. at the time, a decade long, where a lot of U.K. youth were sick and tired of Thatcherism. And Manchester ecstasy and shoegaze oblivion were the ways out, a way of escaping it, a way of blanking out what was going on in the world at the time and creating their own world. So I think when we talk about this movement in Britain at the time, we've got to start with My Bloody Valentine. Absolutely, Greg. It all starts with My Bloody Valentine. They are the avatar band of the shoegaze movement. We've talked about them and their enduring influence on the show in the past when we did our 1991 retrospective. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that as influential as Nirvana's Nevermind, the 1991 album 
by My Bloody Valentine, Loveless, has had every bit as much influence, although it sold probably one yeah. one-hundredth of what Nirvana would sell. It cost ten times more. My Bloody Valentine had been kicking around since the mid-'80s. You know, it was formed by an American kid who wound up growing up in Dublin. His father uh, worked for an international grocery store chain. He finds himself uprooted and a stranger in a strange land. And this is a feeling that will permeate all of the music he ever makes. Very weird in rock history for a band to have wound up so influential where you can so easily dismiss everything it did pretty much before Loveless, right? You know, there are a bunch of early albums and EPs where My Bloody Valentine is stumbling towards its sound. It's very much a gothic and Bauhaus mm. influenced, and, and there's an awful lead singer, male lead singer early on. And it isn't until the late 80s when they start a series of experimental EPs that they start to stumble towards a sound that rock critic Dave Sprague once ideally described as part metal machine music and part pet sounds. <laughs> the band leader, Kevin Shields, began taking ecstasy and becoming fascinated with dance culture. He loved this notion of the rough outlines of a sound where the middle was missing. He loved to walk around a busy city like Dublin or New York City at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and where sometimes there are millions of people thronging the streets, there's nobody there. He liked the emptiness of that sound, and he arrived at this technical innovation of taking a Yamaha digital effects pedal that had a backward reverb envelope setting and playing his guitar through that, strumming in a very Ramones-like way. It mm -hmm. all came from the Ramones, all about the downstroke, but he would wrap his little finger around the whammy bar, a relic of the surf era, mm -hmm. you know, that vibrato. He would move the whammy bar on every stroke of the guitar, which meant his guitar was constantly going in and out of tune. And both guitars in My Bloody Valentine and the bass would mimic that method, and the drums would be the only anchor, and the vocals would be set behind everything else, so that you're almost always straining to listen. What did she say? Mm -hmm. What What are those lyrics? Yeah. I don't even really know. And so this entire time you're listening to My Bloody Valentine, it's coming in and out of focus. It's almost like the sound of bed spins or seasickness, except it's much more pleasant than mm -hmm. that. Here's an example. It's My Bloody Valentine with the song Blown a Wish on Sound Opinion.
My Bloody Valentine with the song Blown A Wish on Sound Opinions. No doubt My Bloody Valentine set the bar mighty high with Loveless in 1991, did a U.S. tour the following year in which they managed to blow Dinosaur Jr. off the stage in terms of just volume level. That's pretty hard to do. And then disappeared. There were a number of other bands inspired by what My Bloody Valentine was doing and inspired by the dream pop scene that was in the U.K. at the time, creating their own important work. One of my favorite bands out of that scene was the band Lush, and I think they represent a really important strain of shoegaze. The two main songwriters in the band were women, Mickey Berenier and Emma Anderson, and I think the democratic co-ed approach of a lot of these shoegaze bands cannot be overestimated. It was a very important theme in that movement. You had Belinda Butcher in, in My Bloody Valentine being a key member of that band, and with Berenier and Anderson basically playing the guitars, writing all the songs, singing all the vocals in Lush, they dominated that group. Lush was basically discovered, quote-unquote, by the Cocteau Twins' Robin Guthrie. He saw them in a club. He was very influential on the sound of the movement, and he got them a deal with 4AD Records. Their debut EP in 1989 was a key document in in shoegaze. It got grave reviews in the UK press and really helped create the movement alongside My Bloody Valentine. Their gala compilation, which was basically their three UK EPs, was their US debut in 1990. And on that record, a song like Thought Forms with those heavy guitars, but still with a pop sensibility underneath, really defined their sound. Here it is on Sound Opinions.
Thought Forms by Lush from their 1989 debut on Sound Opinions. Jim, by 1994, they made an album called Split, and you can start to see the pop elements start to overtake the heavy guitars. You know, some of the shoegaze purists were probably saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Mm. Well, what's going on here is that shoegaze was colliding head-on with another emerging movement in the UK at the time called Britpop. You started to see the emergence of bands like Suede and later on Oasis and Blur starting to take over the scene. Already by 93, 94, shoegaze was being shoved to the margins and a single like Love Life was the response of these bands to that new sound. By 96, Lush was no more. Their drummer, Chris Ackland, tragically committed suicide. The band was done, but left behind a small, but I think really important legacy. Greg, Shoegaze never had its moment in the sun that it deserved in the UK, and certainly made almost no impact outside of real record collector geek types Mm -hmm. in the US. You had other bands in the movement before it became full-on Britpop. Moose. Hail Saints, Swerve Driver, Chapter House, mm-hmm. Early Catherine Wheel, Early Verve. But the other two bands I think that are really important and whose influence lives on as Shoegazer influences today are uh, Slow Dive, who you're going to talk about, and Ride, who I'm going to talk about. Ride were one of the exceptions in terms of not being co-ed. They were four beautiful boys. <laughs> they had met in their native Oxford in essentially what is in America grammar school. Key to this infamous meeting of the two main forces in the band, Mark Gardner and Andy Bell, was a uh, high school production of Grease. Mark Gardner is singing. Grease is the word is the word on stage. <laughs> Andy Bell is part of the band. These guys come together and they begin making music. Bell is from a very musical household. and The only pop albums in it, though, are the Psychedelic Beatles records, Rubber Soul and Revolver. He falls in love with these sounds, and essentially, right out of high school, they begin jamming, and the ride sound is already there. You take equal parts, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, or Hey Bulldog, Psychedelic Beatles, and add it with a little bit of punk ferocity, and you get where Ride is going. My Bloody Valentine comes along, and they're very impressed with that. They wind up eventually having their first album, Nowhere, mixed by the Valentine's engineer, Alan Mulder. They had recorded it at night, largely, in an abandoned church where they set up a recording studio. They drove the initial engineer crazy. Mulder comes in to mix it, and Ride debuts with what I think is a perfect shoegaze album. Number two on the list of enduring masterpieces after Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. Nowhere has a picture on it of a giant swell in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) Moody, dark blues. I mean, that is the sound. That is the visualization of the sound of Ride. Here is a song from that album by Ride, Dreams Burn Down on Sound Opinions.
Green Burned Down by Ride from the 1990 release Nowhere on Sound Opinions. We're talking about the shoegaze movement during this episode, and Greg, it's got to be said that as moody and ambient and hypnotic as they were on record, live, like I, I said earlier, they would just tear the top of your head off mm-hmm. because the drummer and bassist played with an Entwistle moon ferocity. It was like the who. It was over the top. And I don't care if they were staring at their shoes or celebrating their, themselves, any of the stuff that the English uh, press derisively threw at them. It was a ferocious live experience and a very inspired one. Greg, as far as I'm concerned, all of the Ride albums are great. Nowhere's a masterful debut. The next effort, Going Blank Again, is almost as strong. They make one album before they break up, 1996. It's sparer, more minimalist. In between, though, is my second favorite Ride album. In 1994, with Britpop Ascendant, right? That's the year of Blur and Oasis Mm. battling it out. It's the Beatles versus the Stones redux. Blur and Oasis are on the front page of every music publication in the UK. Ride goes to America and they make an album with Rick Rubin called Carnival of Light, which is a wonderful attempt of shoegaze to meet Britpop. There are choirs that haven't been heard since the Rolling Stones. Uh, you can't always get what you want. There, There's orchestration. There's this. It's a wonderful, lush record. I don't know where it comes from. Don't ask me where it comes from. There's something moving through the air. Years ago, it was a The group was trying to change with the times. It never really gained any foothold in America and didn't get anywhere near the respect it deserved in the UK and finally breaks up after that last album, Tarantula. And here is the most tragic part. Mark Gardner uh, continues to produce many young bands, and he's, he's very respected. You know what Bell is doing? Bell winds up joining Oasis on bass. He was a great guitarist, a great singer, a great songwriter. He winds up as the fill-in bassist, and he continues to work with Liam Gallagher. Mm. In my book, this is the equivalent of John (laughs) Lennon having been tapped to join Herman's Hermits. It is just so (laughs) wrong to see this wonderful shoegaze talent frittering away his life for a paycheck with a far more mediocre outfit. A big paycheck, we might add. A big paycheck. Something he never saw in Ride, unfortunately. No, you're absolutely right, Jim. A hugely underrated band. Never really got their due in the same class as My Bloody Valentine. Even more underrated, I think, is uh, Slow Dive, mainly because I think they really didn't sound like any of the other shoegaze bands. Yeah. I think in all of them, you can find traces of punk. There was that drive underneath those layers of guitar. In Slow Dive, it was all about this lulling, lush sound. We talk, we use this term atmosphere or atmospheric a lot in describing these bands. Slow dive was all atmosphere. I mean, the slow dive, the slow swoon, that was their sound, and they were experts at it. Five-piece band, three guitar players, including the core members Neil Halstead and Rachel Goswell, who met as school kids and had been together ever since in bands. Uh, Slow dive was their great achievement. And ding me on this one, because Brian Eno... 
plays a role in this music very heavily. He was an influence on all of shoegaze, and it really is only us trying not to be a cliche that we haven't mentioned him yet. Well, truly, and he, he in fact shows up on their second record, Suvlaki, uh, released in 1993. But I think the whole idea of Eno and those ambient records he started making in the 70s played a big role in Neil Halstead and Rachel Goswell's thinking about how this band should sound. That the music could function both as background and foreground. It had a very utilitarian value. As a result, the UK press, seeing no traces of punk in this, hated it. You know, they, they totally wrote this band off. But man, I went to see them once on a tour, and I remember hearing the first few minutes of the first song, and I go, I've never heard a sound as deep and rapturous as this. I felt like I was being enveloped in a cocoon of guitars, and it was a really wonderful, rapturous feeling. Now, they also incorporated acoustic instruments, which you didn't hear a lot in in shoegaze. In a song like Richard, you get that beautiful atmospheric backdrop, but also with acoustic instruments. Later on, Halstead starts moving completely in the ambient direction. By the time of their last record, Pygmalion, in 1995, it was essentially a Halstead solo record that was basically all ambient atmosphere. The Eno influence had completely taken over to beautiful effect, but meanwhile the band was completely written off. You, you listen to a track now like Shine, and you get those distant female vocals, those pulsing guitars. It's the embodiment of the ambient approach to shoegaze. Greg, we really should point out that after a resurgence in new shoegaze bands in the early 2010s, all four of these groups that we've been talking about reformed. My Bloody Valentine finally followed up Loveless, we never thought that would happen, in February 2013 with MBV. 
Ride and Slow Dive both got back together right about 2014 and eventually released new albums in 2017. The living members of Lush got together in 2015, only to break up again about a year later, but not until after releasing a new EP. And shoegaze bands uh, keep popping up, Jim. I mean, there is no end to this genre. You know, we talk about bands like Beach House and Deer Hunter that have been around for years, but there's uh, a bunch of bands, uh, newer bands that are, are cropping up all over the world, really. I mean, you could go to to Italy for Rev, 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 or mm-hmm. France for Dead Horse One, or Nova Scotia for Kestrels. In, in the U.S., uh, you know, you could go across from Sacramento, California, where Soft Science, one of my favorite bands, is playing, uh, to Baltimore, where Wild Honey uh, has been making some yeah. great records over the last few years. And, uh, you know, my favorite of the bunch might be this band from Australia, of all places. Everybody thinks it's all about Courtney Barnett over there. Well, there's other great bands there, too, like Low Tide, very much uh, indebted to the shoegaze genre. The place to end, Greg, might be the fact, and I'll use his name for the last time, <laughs> what Brian Eno said about the Velvet Underground is equally true of these shoegazer bands. They may not have sold a lot of records in their time, but it sometimes seems like everybody who bought one went out and started a band of their <laughs> own. And that's ultimately a pretty high tribute to any group of musicians. Now we want to hear from you. What do you think of shoegaze? Do you have memories back to the early days of the genre? Call 888-859-1800 to share your thoughts on the show. When we come back, we'll hear from Pedro the Lion's David Bazan about what song got him hooked on Sonics. That's in a minute from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of Yellow Bike by Pedro the Lion from their fifth album, Phoenix, their first in 15 years. Now, the only constant member of the band is David Bazan, a guy who grew up deep in the early 1980s evangelical subculture, but writes scathing critiques of it in most of his songs. Even though his father was a music minister, it wasn't church music that got him hooked on Sonics. The song Axel F... Named for the uh, main character, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, Axel Foley, played by Eddie Murphy. I loved it so much, and 
Everywhere I went, wherever there was a piano, it seemed like me and everybody else were just playing ding, 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 just, just that little melody over and over again and taking turns and showing each other like, no, it goes like this. We didn't have a TV all the time, and we got one for the world television premiere of Superman. We would videotape the movies off of TV and even sit and watch and videotape and try to cut the commercials out in real time. And we had a videotape of Beverly Hills Cop as they you know, broadcasted on TV, so without any swearing. I think I was in the third grade. I was so influenced by that movie in general, the music of it. The Heat Is On has this pretty famous sort of like saxophone hook. Man, I loved that song so much. I was taking piano lessons from my dad, who was like a musician, music pastor. He taught all kind of kids. You know, I was just playing the kind of kid songs that you play in early piano lessons. Um, he did really believe there was like this special power that lyric and melody had together. And he definitely didn't feel like we should be hearing secular music. Um, one of the saving graces of the song Axel F is that it has no lyrics, so it can't really be secular or Christian per se. I just really loved that song and I thought I want to learn how to play that song for real. So my dad said, well, we can get the sheet music for it. So we did, um, when we went down to this piano store that had pianos and synthesizers and sheet music my dad was buying a Yamaha DX7 for the church which was so exciting and I got the sheet music for Axel F I went home and I learned it uh, slowly kind of painstakingly because it was way over my head it wasn't like Rachmaninoff or something it just was some chords and melodies and a bass line. It was like the first kind of major achievement, I feel like. Once I finally got the whole thing done, I just was, I felt so proud. Played it at the recital on the DX7. It was, um, you know, a real outlier. We didn't dial in the sound the way that I wanted it, so it was, at first it was a little disorienting, but I figured it out. It was, it was really fun. That was the first time that I had, like, a musical goal, and that I fulfilled that goal. It just was a pattern that I was going to repeat for the rest of my life. It's like learning how to juggle or to do a magic trick you refine it and and then you get to possess in some sense this ephemeral thing that is called a song it just it's the most crazy wonderful thing to to do so yeah it, it hooked me until now yeah it hasn't stopped 
Axel F. from Beverly Hills Cop, the song that got David Bazan hooked on Sonics. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, we've got some buried treasures that we're going to unearth, songs that are flying underneath the mainstream radar that we think you need to hear. Download Sound Opinions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your smart speaker, or wherever you get such thingies. Sound Opinions has been produced, as always, by Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, Iana Contreras, and Andrew Gill. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Jim and Greg, man, this is Scott from GI. And I can't believe you guys did a true crime song show without talking about the greatest rapper of all time, Tupac Shakur. And his great hit classic, Brenda's Got a Baby. The real story was about a 12-year-old girl who got pregnant by her cousin and ended up throwing a baby in a trash compactor. But in Tupac's story, she tried to sell drugs and ended up a victim in prostitution. It was a perfect way to condemn society for the way that it treats young women, particularly in the inner cities of our country. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay righteous. And I'm out. She tried to hide a pregnancy from a family who really didn't care. Hey, Jimmy Greg. This is Virginia in Chicago. I just wanted to weigh in on the saddest true crime songs ever made. Have a listen to Steel Pulse, 1984, Roller Skate, Life Without Music. I was living in Jamaica in the 80s. The country was pretty poor, but music gave people the strength to press on. Few people had TVs, many people had no electricity. For many, the most valuable possession was a radio, a wireless radio. It could connect you through the radio DJs to the rest of the island, not just all day, but throughout many a long and lonely cold night. Uh, This song captures the feeling of having your lifeline, your radio, forcibly taken from you. Radios were hard to come by and expensive, so you had to do without. The song's great refrain is so sad, because that's how it felt. Life without music, I can't go on. Life, life without music, I can't go on. Life without music, I can't go Check it out. Thanks, guys. Hey guys, this is Tim calling from Oak Park. I enjoyed your show this week, last week, on uh, songs about crimes. And I wanted to point out a song that uh, you might have missed. It's on Travis's Scott CD, Virgin the Trap Sing, that night. It's the first song called The Ends. 
He uh, brings in Andre 3000, who uh, grew up in Atlanta, talking about the Atlanta child murders, where it was uh, in the high 20s, uh, some kids were murdered, and to this day, people are pretty sure they did not catch the right guy. I came up in the town, they were murdering kids, and dumped them in the creek up from where I live. Spotty, 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 sprinkled around. We running through the sprinkler, looking around. The killer would show up with boxes of pizza, and said he had a label so I just wanted to point that out. Thanks for everything you do, and I'll be listening. My homie said he told him his name was Wayne. Hi, this is Eric Nyman calling from Brookings, Oregon. And I was calling about your true crime show. Great show, guys. Really liked it. Um, I wanted to nominate 1913 Massacre by Woody Guthrie. This is a song about a copper miner's strike in Calumet, Michigan. The copper miners were having a Christmas party in 1913, uh, and someone in, entered the hall and shouted, fire. The gun thugs, they laughed at their murderous joke while the children were smothered on the stairs by the door. The copper miners uh, trampled over each other trying to exit the hall, and 73 people died, including 59 children. It was a horrible, horrible death, and really helped galvanize the labor movement Thanks, guys. Really love the show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.